Hello and welcome to the New Economy Network Australia NINA podcast. My name is Anna Garnock and I'm grateful to interview folks involved with NINA, Australia's largest multi-sectoral network of innovators, change makers and advocates working for an ecologically sound and socially just economy. Today we'll be interviewing Nick Rose, who is the Executive Director of Sustain, the Australian Food Network, National Food Systems Organisation. I'm excited to chat with you, Nick. Good morning and thanks for joining me today. Hi, Anna. Yeah, nice to be here with you and great to be supporting Nina and the fantastic work they do. So I wanted to just start out by asking you a bit about yourself. Can you give us an intro to who you are, what you're all about, what you do and how that's going? I see myself as what some people call a scholar activist. So I've sort of got a foot in camps of academia. I have a role in teaching and research at William Anglis Institute in Melbourne. Uh, We have a Bachelor of Food Studies and a Master of Food Systems and Gastronomy. Uh, So that is some teaching work in the area of food policy, food governance, food movements, food politics. So I've got a real interest in food as a vehicle for social change. I express that through my teaching and research work and also through the not-for-profit organisation that I co-founded back in 2015, which is Sustain the Australian Food Network. So that is really attempting to support the transition, which we say is urgent and necessary, to a food and farming system for this country that uh, values and prioritises human and ecological flourishing rather than short-term corporate profit. So that's my mission, my personal mission, mission of my organisations, and I've been on that path probably now about 20 years. I could probably sort of trace it back to the early 2000s when I was living and working in Guatemala and Central America. I've been living in England for a number of years, working in the not-for-profit space, having previously been a corporate lawyer and left Australia. So way back in the midst of time, being a a corporate lawyer, uh, not for too long, then leaving and spending the best part of seven years in the UK and then similar amount of time in Central America, where I had the great uh, privilege of meeting and working alongside for some uh, years, uh, leaders of uh, human rights organisations, of peasant movements, of environmental movements, Indigenous organisations from Honduras, Guatemala and Chiapas in southern Mexico. And that got me really interested in food and agriculture, and particularly in that context, the concentration of land and who owns the land and what it's used for and how that impacts on people's livelihoods and well-being as well as uh, ecosystems. And that led me back into study. I went and did a Master of Community Development through Deakin University while living there and then came back to Australia at the end of 26 to start a PhD in food sovereignty as a Indigenous peoples and small farmer-led movement for a transformed food system globally. That's kind of it in a little bit of a roundabout nutshell. What a full nutshell. (laughs) When I think of just as an everyday consumer and if I try to factor in how to eat as sustainable as I can, there's so many factors. There's the waste that goes into the production of the food, but also the packaging. There's the land miles, how far it's travelled. There's the water usage. There's the how many emissions were emitted in the process of making it. Food sovereignty, local, who am I sourcing this from? Is it a massive conglomerate or is it a small-scale farmer? Are there chemicals being used? This It's such a complex thing that I know for me personally, I don't, find it super straightforward to know how to eat as best as I possibly can. And plus price and health, of course, weigh into it. And then, you know, I'm one individual and I feel privileged that I can weigh up these questions, but on a global scale with a growing population and land clearing being problematic and only so many resources, it's it's a lot to weigh up. So I'm wondering can you tell me a bit about um, what you found through maybe your research and just imagine a wealth of learning what does sustainable eating look like to you? That's a really huge question. So, yeah, you've touched on a number of things there in the way you frame that and the question, and it's definitely not straightforward. You know, it's not, it's not simple. It's not easy. There's a lot of things to think about. 
And that is part of the essence of food sovereignty, I guess, is a kind of like a call for more democratic and participatory food systems where we should all be understanding these topics and the complexity of them and the significance and importance of them and really exploring together exactly the question that you've raised, like what is sustainable eating? What is a diet for planetary health, as some people speak of it as? Uh, is it, you know, simply everybody becoming vegan and going over to plant-based foods? Is that the answer? What might be left out? These are all, you know, really big questions, but I think they kind of go to the heart of what the NINA is about, the New Economy Network Australia is about in terms of a, you know, reimagined economy, an economy that is really working for people and for the planets uh, rather than for a small number of powerful entities. The question about what is sustainable eating, obviously it varies according to context and according to culture. There's no single straightforward answer that's really appropriate that you can just say globally, this is what everyone should be eating. I think that really is, is very contingent and context and cultural specific. And so I think the first point to bear in mind, fundamentally, I think would be a question that would be worked out according to a set of principles as to particularly the system of agriculture and, and land management and farming that works to the greatest extent possible in sympathy with, in harmony with the environment, with the soil, with the landscapes, with water, with other species, so that we can all eat well together. And by we, I'm not just talking about we as humans, but we as all the other species that are part of the web of life. So that would be, I guess, the organising principle for a sustainable diet and sustainable eating pattern. And that's fundamentally the shift that we uh, are needing to make in our food systems because the diets that we are eating now are not that. They are quite uh, destructive. They're destructive to other species. They involve lots of land clearing, deforestation, soil degradation, releasing huge amounts of carbon, great sort of monocultures that are obliterating other species, huge use of agrochemicals. You know, we could go on and on all through the system and then it ends up with ultra processed foods which are really heavily promoted and marketed and very profitable but of course that's leading to a huge crisis of uh, non-communicable diseases you know dietary related ill health different types of cancers diabetes and so on that's really jeopardizing life prospects for us who are alive now for the generation coming through and and future generations so we know where we're going wrong and we know the pathways to turn it around and there's the good news side of this story is that there's so many people in this country and globally who are doing amazing things around food um, in all kinds of ways so the answers the the alternatives are well and truly out there and established the challenge and i guess this is part of what my research and study and analysis has brought me to over many years is that the biggest obstacles are often political and, and economic in that the current system works very well for a small number of powerful actors because it generates a lot of profit for them. So they don't want to change. If anything, they want to expand it, consolidate it, reinforce through policy and governance insofar as we need to be going down the path of climate smart agriculture and those kind of things. It's all big tech, industrialised, big data, big scale and big profits continuing. The challenge, a big part of the challenge is political and shifting power in the food system. And I think that's true across the economy more broadly, not just in food, but in other sectors as well. Often these big changes always come down to that, don't they? Personally, how do you navigate on a day-to-day -day basis how you eat? Well, I really like to grow some of my own food. And I think that if I could leave one message for anybody who's listening to this, I'd say that's one of the best things that you can do. And I'm sure a lot of people already are growing some of their own food. It's really a really great thing to be doing for so many reasons. You know, in the pandemic, it was something a lot of people took up maybe for the first time. There were all kinds of stories that emerged in newspapers and on the ABC and other places about, you know, the nurseries running out of seeds and seedlings because people were at home and spending more time in the garden and wanting to grow some of their own food. I see that as a really good thing to do. And in terms of the food you can eat, you know, if you can grow some of your own herbs and veg, it's really great food. As long as you're not using chemicals on them and using reasonable compost and soil, it's the precious food you can get. The food that you can just walk out to your balcony or to your front garden or back garden or nature strip and actually pick a salad and eat it straight away is the best you're going to get in terms of health and wellbeing and nutrition 
And it's a sense of achievement and empowering that something that you've produced, you've participated in the cycle of life. You've raised a seedling, maybe you've germinated the seed, you've cared for the soil, you've composted, you've cared for the plants, you know, you've watered it, you've done weeding and looked after it and so on. And then you're enjoying the harvest and it's a really great thing to do. So that would be the first thing. And so I, I have participated in community gardens for years and years. I've been growing a reasonable amount of my own food for the last few years in particular. Um, my organisation has a couple of community gardens that we're managing. So definitely try and eat from produce that I've grown myself at least a few times a week. And then we were running for quite a while a local food box program through the Melbourne Food Hub, which was one of our projects. And that was supporting a young urban farmer at one of our sites in uh, in Alphington in Melbourne. Yeah, she was growing, uh, doing some row crops in, in some market garden beds. And then we linked up with some local producers close to Melbourne and put together a, a weekly box of, of fresh fruit and veg and had been eating through that for a couple of years as well. So that's a really great thing to do, particularly if you can find uh, local producers close to you in terms of the questions about long distance transport and those kind of things, as well as diversity and resilience across the food system. I am a big believer that we need to support our local producers. And indeed, I think one of the lessons of COVID was that when there were disruptions in supply chains and markets closed down and restaurants closed and farmers were impacted. It was those smaller producers who could be more agile and flexible and who were, you know, in some ways more resilient to those challenges. So I think they're a really important part of a diversified and sustainable and resilient food system going forward. So if you do have the opportunity to participate in that kind of food purchasing through local food box, farmers market, buying directly from farmers, um, community support agriculture, those kinds of direct or short sort of value chain um, supply systems are really great options to go for. Yeah, and then there's variations on those with things like mushrooms. So at the Melbourne Food Hub, alongside the small-scale urban farm that we've been supporting, there are a couple of women who are growing oyster mushrooms in shipping containers. So this is kind of like new urban agri-tech, you know, urban mushrooms. Uh, so, yeah, these two women have been, you know, co-farming separate businesses but side-by-side doing their oyster mushrooms in those shipping containers now for a couple of years and they sell to restaurants, they sell at farmers markets, but they do their own sort of direct to customer community support agriculture set up as well. There's a local beekeeper on the same site. So honey is a great thing to eat. Urban honey is, you know, really good. That's really great to be supporting the, the pollinators. Of course, the, the bees are responsible for pollinating by some estimates 33% or more of our food system. So we have to look after them. Supporting beekeepers is really, really important. If you can buy some urban honey, that's a really great thing to do. So looking for those, you know, those proximate producers is, is a really good thing to do. And I personally am not a vegetarian or vegan. I do believe that animals have a role to play in a, you know, polyculture and diverse food system through soil fertility and returning manures to soil and building soil life and those kind of things. So, yeah, it's a, it's a personal choice, but yeah, personally, I um, do have a, not, not a huge amount of meat, but I do eat some meat and there's all great ways of sourcing ethical meat. So, um, and you can buy in bulk as well, again, through local producers. Yeah, my partner found a bulk order of beef last week from a regenerative cattle farmer reasonably close to Melbourne. And it was so much more affordable than the supermarkets. So like all different sort of like cuts of meat at average of about $17 a kilo where you can be paying, you know, $40, $50, $60 a kilo for different sort of types of organic meat in supermarkets. So, yeah, if you do eat meat, I definitely kind of like encourage you to think about those options. And, yeah, in terms of like dried goods, uh, you know, I spent some time in India. I love sort of like Indian cuisine and, you know, the pulses, lentils, rices, all that kind of stuff. That's, you know, an important part of my diet. And, yeah, we've got, you know, lucky to have in Melbourne a growing, uh, you know, South Asian community close to where I live. And there's a whole strip of Indian supermarkets not far away, uh, which are really great to go and browse in and buy spices and lentils and different dried beans and those kind of things. Yeah, I really enjoy eating that way. And it's really affordable as well. In terms of if you're on a budget, it's um, really great cuisine to be following in terms of, yeah, managing your budget, which is a really big thing these days, of course. Yeah, other sort of like cultural food, like I mentioned, I spent a long time in um, Central America, so I really like that cuisine as well. You know, the tortillas and the refried beans and 
guacamole, all that food. And um, yeah, we've got a great Mexican restaurant in inner Melbourne called La Tortilleria that um, make the tortillas the traditional Aztec way with the Nishtamatal. And yeah, I really like buying uh, tortillas and other products through that business, which is run by Mexican Australians and provides a lot of employment to members of that community. And I guess it's kind of like a bit of a mix, I suppose. But yeah, local food, local producers, growing some of your own, supporting cultural food businesses, eating in season. Those are all kind of like principles that I try to follow. Amazing. Thank you for that thorough rundown. Uh, You've successfully made me hungry. (laughs) (laughs) I love thinking about Indian food, Mexican food, all the many, many delicious cuisines out there and how eating in a regenerative way can actually be really exciting and delicious, Yeah, which is... Yeah, um, I, would, I would also say, yeah, I'm def- you know, I definitely support local producers and feel we need to eat closer to home, but I'm not kind of like, I wouldn't describe myself as a locavore, if you like, and just say we can only eat what's around us. I think if we do that, we lose so much. I think part of the richness of human culture is through exchange and knowledge and food is a big part of that. And, you know, enjoying food through other cultural cuisines and things is really important in terms of fresh produce and meat and those kind of things support local but yeah big big fan of different you know cuisines and products from around the world as well understandable and hey maybe one day in the not too distant future we'll have boats that ship all sorts of different delicious delicacies from around the world that are run electricity that has been created from renewable energy. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would say just on that, a very big food item that I do enjoy every day is coffee. Well, it's a beverage, really, but it's coffee. So I'm sure everyone, or a lot of people do. That is a huge part of the global food system. Like there's, you know, millions and millions of small-scale producers in tropical countries around the world who are engaged in producing coffee. So that's one place where you can have like a significant impact in terms of your food choices about where you get your coffee from and thinking about fair trade and ethical coffee sourcing is really important. And there's some really good businesses that are uh, starting to pop up, social enterprises that are really combining fair trade coffee sourcing with zero waste. So I was in Sydney a couple of weeks ago at an event that City of Sydney were hosting and was privileged to meet Darcy, I think the guy's name was, who was a group of like UNSW students who started up a business called KUA, K-U-A, which is sourcing coffee direct from small-scale producers in Uganda. So they've got like a direct relationship with, uh, I think it's a cooperative small-scale farmers in in Uganda. Uh, That's where they're getting their coffee from. But then they're selling that to city businesses with a zero-waste solution. So the coffee's delivered in completely recyclable packaging, which is cycled back in a kind of like circular economy way. And that coffee grounds are then donated to community gardens for composting inputs. And it's got a real educative function for the staff in city offices about their footprint in the um, in the food system, or at least this part of it with the, uh, with the coffee side of things. So, you know, we don't grow a lot of coffee. We do where I used to live up in um, mid-north coast of South Wales. There's a little bit of coffee production but you know obviously it's never going to be at a scale that will satisfy the demand for coffee that we have in Australia so we're going to be importing coffee for very much the foreseeable future and there's a lot of exploitation that goes on on coffee farms a lot of child labor same with chocolate is another big one where there's a lot of really bad labor practices and again this is where multinationals take a lot of that value through those poor practices so if you can be supporting startup social enterprises where you live in Australia that are having those really transparent ethical trading relationships with small-scale producers in these tropical countries where these products are growing, then that's a really good thing to be doing. 100%. This is so good to get this reminder because I think a lot of us know about fair trade, we know about Rainforest Alliance, we know about all these different labels, but it can be very out of sight, out of mind. And when there's young kiddos in, say, West Africa uh, in slave-like conditions, reaping the cacao that might go into, I don't know, a a cacao bar, for example, and then it's shipped all the way over here to Australia, we pick that up pretty guilt-free. So uh, it's Yeah, that's right. I mean, one of the the subjects I teach in the food studies degree here is um, understanding food systems, and the key sort of entry point to that is what we call a commodity chain analysis. So that's a particular method of political economy where you understand the relationships across countries, 
and across supply chains through looking deeply at a particular commodity. So the students look at coffee or chocolate or bananas or a particular food commodity, go and follow it right back through the commodity chain to really uh, understand the conditions of production and the, the social and environmental impacts that, that it's having. Because part of the, the complexity and the difficulty of understanding all these questions and impacts as a consumer in a place like Australia is that Typically, we only relate to food through the price, right, through the label and the price we pay at the checkout in a grocery store or supermarket. And there's so much that's concealed and obscured, even if there's a label that gives some information, it hides so much. And certainly through the price, there's so much that is not revealed. So, you know, we have a relationship, we have a connection with the farmers who are growing that coffee bean over in Ethiopia or Guatemala or wherever it was but we don't know them and you know we only know them through this price relationship but there's could be so much more to it than that so i think part of the broader economic shift and change is through gaining much greater transparency through these supply chains and and us educating ourselves as consumers in australia about the real conditions of production and the the impacts that these huge commodity production systems are having on fragile ecosystems and rainforests in guatemala or honduras or places like that and the labour conditions of the people who work there and the way trade unions might be being oppressed, for example, and child labour practices and all these kinds of things. So if you can have the opportunity to develop deeper connections and relationships through those major commodities and get involved in networks and things like, like Nina, for example, and where we can educate ourselves about these things, like through the Nina short courses you know, that we've contributed to on food and food systems, for example. It's a great way of raising your own level of consciousness and and really understanding the systemic nature of food and agriculture and, and just how big a footprint it has on, on all of us in all these multiple ways. And how we have a choice right? three times a day when we eat. Thank you. And I love that you self-segued into my next question, which is about how did you go from this really interesting, rich and diverse world of all things food into connecting with Nina? That's a really good question. And I'm thinking it was probably through Michelle Maloney. <laughs> Michelle is a, a great connector and networker and the exact kind of link is probably lost in the midst of time somewhere back in 2016 or 17. I can't remember exactly how it happened, but I think I was an event in Sydney maybe back in 2016 or 17 and got to meet Michelle uh, and then, you know, further conversations sustain it was just getting going through doing a whole bunch of events um, around that time as well and Nina were wanting to yeah look for an organization to host their third national conference in Melbourne yeah with my connection at William Anglis there's a conference center here I was able to get the organization at William Anglis to support the Nina conference that year through you know making the venue space available and yeah we ran the three-day conference here in Melbourne in uh, November 2018, I think, from memory. Yeah, obviously it had a lot to do with Michelle and the kind of like planning and organisation and, and, you know, working towards the realisation of that event. But, yeah, it was, a you know, a great event. I think we had nearly 200 people um, register for it and a lot of speakers, you know, nationally, internationally across the three days in Melbourne and been in touch with Michelle ever since and supported you know Nina initiatives to the extent that I've been able to through the the food hub and the short course and other things that have been going on. From that involvement thus far do you see any opportunities for the future of how you'd like to further get involved with Nina or do you think it will be this ongoing support in in conferences and workshops? Oh no absolutely I think there's lots of opportunities to, to do things further in fact I was thinking about Nina just this past weekend, actually, because my friend uh, Joel Orchard from Young Farmers Connect, who's also part of the Nina Food Hub, uh, Joel's been doing great work supporting young people around Australia wanting to get into agriculture and trying to create pathways and opportunities for them to do so. But in the last few months uh, this year, with all the just extraordinary flooding that's been happening in northern New South Wales, um, he's living sort of outside Lismore, uh, he's found himself in a kind of like a, a, a maelstrom of, you know, disaster recovery and relief and helping to try and get the community back on their feet. And, you know, food and food sourcing is, is, is a big part of that, obviously. 
It's been really hard. Like I, I think they've been really a little bit taken aback and disappointed by the lack of support they've had from the state government and even from local government and sort of just the levels of disaster preparedness and relief and recovery are just not what you would expect or hope for in a country like Australia and the scale of this disaster as it has been and continues to be. So yeah, it'd be great if there was some role for Nina as a network of really smart and capable and passionate and engaged people about ideas of social justice and equity and different forms of doing things socially and culturally and economically and politically to say, well, actually, we've got a real world crisis that is happening right now in and around Lismore. And, you know, maybe there's some opportunities through the network to look at what kind of tangible concrete support might be available, not just through donations or those kind of things, which have um, obviously been coming, but, you know, more in terms of structures and governance and longer term supports and these ideas that have been talked about and imagined through different events and visioning and conferences and so on around the new economy, how can they actually be realised and manifest in a very real world, necessary, needful situation like what's happened with Lismore, where half the town has been flooded and there's such a critical need in so many ways, what role might Nina have to play in in that context? So I, I don't know the answer to that. I'm just thinking that maybe there's an opportunity at least for some conversations and some reflections about what could actually take place in that particular context. But yeah, I mean, certainly in terms of like ongoing, you know, collaborations around events and and those kind of things, um, you know, we, through our kind of like audience can promote what Nina's doing and and events. And likewise, um, we're gearing up now for the second National Urban Agriculture Forum. So we're um, very passionate about the role of people growing food themselves in their own spaces in towns and cities. You know, we speak of this vision of making Australia's towns and cities edible, having an abundance of food growing in all kinds of different places, you know, public and private, and that this would be a great way to bring people together and to address some critical issues and needs, particularly around food security and access to good food people who need it and more and more people are in that situation with the cost of living crisis and inflation and prices the way they're going. The Urban Agriculture Month is a national celebration and consciousness raising events that will take place in November this year where we're really just putting a call out to everybody who is involved in some way in these activities, you know, community gardens or school gardens or even their own gardens to think about something that they could do, like a little garden tour or a little talk or a workshop or a cooking demo or something like that. And then, yeah, link it to our free map and calendar on the website and, yeah, really build a picture of a growing movement of people starting to reclaim their food system and grow uh, more of their own food. And there is an advocacy agenda around that as well. In the first year of the pandemic in 2020, we did the National Pandemic Gardening Survey that went out for one month in July 2020, and we had support from Costa Georgiatis of Gardening Australia and the Diggers Club, and through other networks as well, and through that support, we managed to get over 9,000 responses to that survey nationally. Um, So a huge, um, massive data set of people engaged in these activities, particularly during the pandemic, so massive evidence base of people saying talking about why they were doing it what they were doing what kind of food they were growing how much food they were growing how long they'd been growing food for and what the benefits were in terms of their mental health and well-being and their dietary health and well-being and social connectedness and all these kinds of things and yeah just overwhelmingly you know hugely positive results about people being really passionate about growing food in their own spaces and public spaces and in the wake of that we created an action agenda and roadmap for the mass expansion of edible gardening and urban agriculture in Australia across six pillars of of action. And the centrepiece of that was a call for a $500 million national edible gardening fund to really resource a mass expansion of food growing across Australia um, as a necessary investment in preventative health. And just, you know, even leaving out the whole ecological, environmental and climate impacts of all the things that we've been talking about, Purely in terms of human health, the Productivity Commission said in 2019 that the direct and indirect costs economically of mental ill health in Australia 
uh, somewhere in the order of $180 billion a year. That was in 2019. So with everything that's happened since through the pandemic, that will only have increased probably quite significantly. And then on top of that, you've got the dietary-related ill health uh, impacts of the uh, unhealthy diets and, and you know, fast and ultra-processed foods, which by some estimates are costing $30, $40, $50 billion a year. So just those two things together, over $200 billion a year in mental health and dietary-related ill health. And we're saying, you know, with $500 million, you could create tens of thousands of jobs, you could deal with the issue of food security, you could really transform our diets, you could create habitats for all these species, you could uh, have so many massive benefits. This is really something positive that our governments and leaders across society could be doing. So yeah, the idea of the Urban Agriculture Month and then the forum, which we run every two years, is really to raise awareness about all of this, but also to support this call for serious action to have a, a huge expansion. I mean, you know, tens, if not hundreds of thousands of Australians are already doing this, but we say it could be done by many more people and it could be a real opportunity for much more education and employment and it's only positive, really. I mean, there's, there's really very little downside to these activities and it'd be a, a really great positive thing for all of us to be doing. That sounds fantastic. My fingers and toes are crossed that um, some funding does go into this because, as you're saying, it's just a win-win-win environmentally, socially, mentally, emotionally, physically, health-wise, yeah. So if I was to ask you your perspective of what's wrong with our global economic system as it currently stands and why we need to build a well-being economy. Could you answer that with a frame of reference to food systems and how they connect? Yeah. I mean, if people are interested and I can send you the link, I explored this through an article I had published earlier this year, actually it came out. So it's an academic article, but it is open source. So anyone can you know access it and read the PDF. The title of the article was The Cancer Stage of Capitalism and Moving from That to the Commons. So that was the kind of like the framing that I set out. And by cancer and capitalism, it really comes back to this uh, understanding that the economic system that, you know, we all live in and, you know, have grown up in and shapes all our lives, uh, which is capitalism, is premised on this assumption that it's going to just continue growing, you know, infinitely. So in that sense, it is relatable and understandable to the progression of cancer as a disease that just continues kind of expanding and multiplying without, uh, without any end and ultimately ends up killing its host. The title is not mine. It was actually a Canadian doctor, John McMurtry, who wrote a book um, by that title about 20 odd years ago and made that argument not as a rhetorical flourish or a as a metaphor, but really in terms of like a, a fairly rigorous medical analysis, looking at the cellular behaviour of cancer in a human body and then kind of transposing that to the greater collective of humanity as being, you know, 7 billion individual cells, like a greater human body, if you like. In terms of what's wrong, I would take it to that kind of level of analysis in terms of the deep cause of the destructive nature of the economy and the, the food system, that it's just this, you know, its priorities are wrong fundamentally. Like it's, it's simply premised on continual expansion with the goal of making profit, making money. And the shift that we need to embark on and, and what I understand the new economy network is about is a, a shift in priority, essentially, and a shift in goals where the priority of our economy and our society is no longer about economic growth and expansion and making money. It's about human and ecological flourishing. And that's the fundamental shift that we need to undergo. Um, so in terms of like how that plays out in the food system, and I talk about this in the article that I mentioned, a great example of that was great in a good sense, but a powerful example of it in just how destructive it can be is what the writer Tony Weiss calls the grain oil, seed, livestock complex. And by that, he talks about the, the huge, great monocultures of the production of genetically modified corn and soy. And so that's the grain and the oil seed. And then how that cycles through the, uh, the food system to become feed for factory farmed animals, particularly pigs and chickens in massive farms in Asia and Europe and the United States. 
But in terms of like where all that production takes place, it's happening in the southern cone countries of South America, so Argentina, Paraguay, and the southern area of Brazil, in what is often described as a green desert. All right, so it's a desert because it's a huge monoculture. It's green because it's a grain crop. But what they've done is just, you know, massively cleared grassland and forest and planted tens of millions of hectares of this single monoculture, this uh, genetically modified soy. And it's uh, genetically modified to tolerate the herbicide glyphosate um, Roundup Ready, right? And because the acreages are so vast, it's not sprayed from the ground, it's sprayed by aeroplane. So it's kind of like crop dusters going above. And because the environmental regulations and safety standards aren't enforced, the plantations are supposed to be a minimum of a kilometre away from the nearest human settlement, but often they're so much closer than that, sometimes across the road. You've got a plane flying above, dropping poison, essentially dropping this herbicide and poisoning whole human populations, Indigenous communities and others. And doctors have reported staggering upsurges of birth defects and cancers and all kinds of terrible diseases that they've never seen before in the last 20 or 30 years. Um, you know, there's been a devastating die off of bees and other pollinators, just terrible from every perspective, apart from profit, apart from the profit of the companies that operate these huge commodity chains. So that's what it looks like at massive scale. And that's the, you know, the logic of a system that really is about constant expansion, constant production, more and more and more with just externalizing the human and the ecological and the social costs at every turn. So that's the challenge that we're facing. And of course, that's happening in the Amazon as well with cattle. Again, you know, massive deforestation and land clearing all driven by this relentless expansionary dynamic. It's a big challenge and the food and agricultural system is absolutely central to the shift that we need to undergo. So the answer, um, the way forward is through, uh, as I was saying before, through farming and production systems that are not waging war on nature, right? These are systems that are literally at war with nature in, in every way. We need to be managing land and ecosystems and soils that are restoring and healing and regenerative of these ecosystems and coexisting with other species rather than just wiping them out. That's the shift that we need to be undergoing. And that is happening and can happen and can happen at large scale. There's wheat farmers in the wheat belt of WA, for example, the Haggerty's, who've got a method called natural intelligence farming that is really minimising the use of chemicals. They are managing tens of thousands of hectares in WA and reforesting and have this vision of even changing the climate and bringing water back to that very dry and, and degraded area of, uh, of Australia that is the, uh, the wheat belt uh, and doing amazing work. So, you know, there's lots of examples of that, of how regenerative agriculture, agroecology can really transform landscapes at scale. But uh, again, we come back to the obstacle being these huge corporations that are just doing so well out of the current system, don't want it to change. In my view, it's, we can't really get away from that political sort of question of, of power in the food system and how we shift that. Such a good point about the very problematic nature of profit being the number one goal of a system and the implications being so far spread, if that's the number one goal. So thank you for sharing that. I'm curious now with your work in Nina and moving forward, if you had hypothetically all the money, resources, time in the whole world to spend on Nina right now, where would you channel that energy? Um, so I've been involved in a really lovely project over the last year here in Melbourne, which has been made possible by a really interesting collaboration. So we have a local government, the city of Darabin. Uh, we have the Anglican Church, um, Melbourne Anglican Trust Corporation, that is a landowner. Uh, we have some philanthropic funding. We have a local uh, primary school uh, and some other partners as well. And that's all come together in what we've christened the Oak Hill Food Justice Farm, which is on the site of a disused vicarage. Uh, so it was a, like a former Anglican church. The church is still there, but it hasn't been used as a church for some years. The congregation has kind of like, you know, ended. And the, the house uh, was abandoned for some years and was slowly being vandalised and the garden was all overtaken by weeds. And then the council negotiated with the church and we got some funding to take it over as a placemaking community food initiative about halfway through last year. 
in the course of that time, we have transformed it from a abandoned, fairly sad house into a really flourishing um, space of engagement. We're growing food for local food relief, for dignified food access. Um, we're about 40 or 50 local residents are coming and volunteering and, and harvesting some produce for themselves. We're running all kinds of different workshops around different types of gardening activities. And we've partnered with the local primary school where the whole school, uh, so it's 700 kids and their teachers are coming through the site in their class groups every Tuesday. So about like 75 kids in total coming in groups of 25 on Tuesdays and learning about, you know, composting and soil and caring for plants and germinating seeds. And, um, you know, they're going to grow a tomato crop together. So if I had money, that land is currently for sale. Like the church have put it on the, the real estate market and want to sell it. I would, you know, love to be able to buy that land, convert it into a community land trust, use the church for a centre of sustainable living and, and art and creativity and education and workshops, keep the community farm going in the way that we're doing and have that as a model that could take place all over Australia where you've got these kinds of creative reimaginings of spaces that are vacant lots and abandoned places in towns and cities and turn them into a whole massive network of health and well-being and, and regeneration and, you know, new yeah. ways of relating to our food system and to each other. If money was not an object, um, that would be what I'd like to do. Wonderful. That's the Oak Hill Food Justice Farm? That's right. So, yeah, the website is oakhillfarm.org.au. We've made a short film that was featured at the Transitions Film Festival, like a 15-minute documentary that tells the story of the first phase of its establishment, sort of from about August last year through to about February this year. Yeah, you know, if anyone's in Melbourne, I really encourage you to come down and check it out. It's a really lovely uh, place and an example of what can be done where, yeah, you have a willing landowner who can let you have access to a space, you have a bit of funding to employ people to activate it and some good programming and some good sort of strong relationships with some partners. You know, with that one house and garden, like a typical suburban block, um, a bit less than a quarter acre in the course of a year, well over probably one and a half thousand people will come through and be touched by that space in different ways. Um, it's just a glimpse into what the new economy could be. Magic. It sounds incredible. And I'll be telling all my buddies down in Melbourne about it. Right. I mean, that just sounds wonderful. And I sure hope that you do get more funding so that you can make these dreams come to fruition. Um, if you had infinite resources, specifically for Nina, for the New Economy Network, where would you like to see that money and resources gone? How would you like to see Nina expand or grow now and into the future? Well, with Nina, you know, and the focus being on the new economy specifically, you know, what's been influential in that are some sort of like intellectual and practical traditions, such as the work of uh, the Gibson Graham collaboration at UNSW, for example, the diverse economies, the post capitalist economies framework. I think it'd be really amazing to have resourcing to kind of really turn all those ideas into practice through models that I just mentioned the community land trust model, which is a great way to address. A critical need in Australia, which is housing. Food is a big challenge and need, but housing is just as critical, if not more so. Louise Crabtree Hayes has done some really great work looking at what the community land trust model is in Europe and North America and how it could be applied in Australia. A lot of the work has been done, like the legal work, the, the model, um, understanding who the stakeholders would be, how you would actually get these things established. It's just lacking, yeah, some resources and some opportunities. So, I'm a huge believer in learning by doing. As the Zapatistas put it, you make the road by walking. The more we can get these kinds of things actually happening and underway in real life that are really meeting uh, critical social needs at this time, the more good we'll be able to do. So Joel, who I mentioned, was down here because we had an event um, out in Eltham on Friday wrapping up a project we've been working on on this whole question of land trusts and looking at different ways of relating to property and the whole idea of private property and the idea of the public good and who is an essential worker and all these really interesting philosophical and political questions. The idea of the project was to come up with new ways of owning and managing and relating to land in the Australian context, particularly in the peri-urban context, 
to create entry points for new farmers, also to protect land from simply being sold off to developers and new suburbs being built that are not really necessarily environmentally sustainable or sympathetic to our needs at this time and certainly not supportive of the food production. That land trust model adapted for the Australian legal and cultural and, and social and economic context, I think, is a huge opportunity. It can address multiple needs, not just the transition to sustainable agriculture, but also affordable housing and sustainable livelihoods. And I think if we could create a pool of funds that could be looking at appropriate sites around the country where we could be financing the acquisition of these sites and creating community-owned cooperatives or other models to actually acquire them and to you know, run them in a cooperative, collaborative way for social purposes, such as social housing and, and food growing and other activities, that would be a fantastic direction for Nina uh, if it had the resourcing to be able to implement it. And there'd be so much uh, impact and learnings from being part of a, a huge upswell of really transitioning away from uh, purely private property ways of relating to land in Australia to more uh, collective and communal forms of land ownership and commons, which ties back into this idea of the commons, uh, which I think is a really powerful historical and contemporary concept that is uh, a big part of what I understand Nina to be. Thank you. And we have just enough time for our final five fast questions. So in 30 seconds or less, can you please answer the following? Who is one person that has been an immense source of personal and or professional inspiration to you and why? I would say the author Raj Patel, who's sort of like gone from working from a corporate space in the World Bank into really being a really amazing community activist and scholar and has written some amazing books and reached uh, so many people and done so in a really powerful way. So, yeah, I really love the way that he writes and and the engaging, accessible way that he takes complex subjects and, and makes them available to a, a huge audience uh, is really powerful. So I'm a big fan of Raj Patel. Noted. Thank you. If you could recommend one resource, so like a book, report, article, documentary, etc., to listeners that you think is valuable and somewhat reflects one or multiple principles of Nina and the work that you're all about, what resource would that be? The most recent book that Raj Patel has written, which is a collaboration between himself and Rupa Maria, is uh, his fellow author, this is called Inflamed, Deep Medicine and the Anatomy of Injustice. Raj Patel is teaming up with physician, activist and co-founder of Do No Harm Coalition, Rupa Maria, to reveal the links between health and structural injustices and to offer a new deep medicine that can heal our bodies and our world, right? So I've only just about so like a third of the way through this, but it's a fantastic read, very much drawing on the, the COVID pandemic and, and the idea of inflammation, but uh, taking that out to, you know, a bit like I was saying about the cancer stage of capitalism, looking at inflammation in the body uh, through the different kind of like, you know, systems that we have, the respiratory system, the endocrine system, the digestive system, neurological system, and so on. But, you know, branching that out to the broader systems, you know, the economic, the political, the social and cultural systems around us and how, you know, they're all in um, different stages of inflammation. But then uh, looking at the path to deep healing, the deep medicine of decolonization is the remedy that's put forward. So decolonizing heals what has been divided, re-establishing our relationships with the earth and one another, combining the latest scientific research and scholarship on globalization with the stories of Maria's work with patients in marginalized communities, activist passion, and the wisdom of indigenous groups inflamed points the way toward a deep medicine that has the potential to heal not only our bodies, but the world. So I recommend everyone to read that. Brilliant. How do you navigate the daily dilemma of, on the one hand, you deeply understand how our economy, centred on infinite growth, um, is clearly harmful and as such you've dedicated your life's work to one area of that, that is food, agriculture. Yet, on the other hand, your survival depends very much on being a part of this system. So I'm wondering how you reconcile that. I think the idea of right livelihoods and sustainable livelihoods is really important. So... I guess I've been fortunate to be able to kind of like create a livelihood for myself and also create employment for other people as well through establishing a not-for-profit organisation and making the case to funders to actually resource it and, and get it funded. So 
that dilemma is resolved to a certain extent. I mean, the organisation is all, you know, a constant work in progress and by no means would I say that it's complete or finished or at a really sustainable level or where I want it to be, but it's been around for seven years now and it's got to a certain stage and so we're doing something right. Obviously, it's been a lot of work. I should say it's just hasn't all been just good fortune and luck. I mean, it's a lot of hard work and sacrifice. And then I guess the teaching role where, I've, where I'm at at William Anglis has been very supportive in having a part-time teaching and research role, which has been quite complementary in a really interesting degree um, where I get to teach, you know, some of these concepts and things that I've been talking about with you today. So that's been, that's been good as well. So it's not a straightforward question, but uh, that's the way that I've navigated it. Thank you. If you could give one piece of advice to Australia's leading politicians, what would it be? I would say create the edible gardening funds. Um, you know, it's uh, it just kind of like addresses so many policy priorities and objectives. If we're talking about health and wellbeing, if we're talking about the climate crisis, if we're talking about biodiversity, talking about social connectedness, you know, the pandemic of loneliness, mental health, you know, wherever you want to look, there's so many great things to come out of people spending time together in the garden and growing food together. And learning about that. So get behind it, resource it, support us who are on the ground doing this work. You will reap the benefits as well as us. We all will. <laughs> and final question. Uh, if people want to reach out to you or at least learn a little bit more about your work, whether it be your teaching, your research, um, your on the ground work, how can they find you? I am on social media, I guess, personally. You can find me on Twitter, Facebook, um, LinkedIn, Instagram. I'm happy to connect with people personally in those mediums. The organisation Sustain also is on all those mediums as well. Um, our website is sustain.org.au. Um, if people are interested, I'm happy for them to email me, nick at sustainaustralia.org. And if you, yeah, have liked what I've said and believe in our work, I'd encourage you to think about becoming a member we are going to be uh, doing more kind of like member um, specific events and organisations, you know, networking and, and forums um, over the next little while and really wanting to engage more deeply with our membership. Yeah, if you really are interested in learning more and, and support this work of Food Systems Change, then, yeah, please, please think about supporting us in that way. Nick Rose, thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. I personally feel like... The world of food is fascinating and I've gone on my own journey since 2014 of dabbling with plant-based eating, local eating. How do I reconcile so many dilemmas? And I feel like I could have chatted to you a lot more about it for a lot longer, but I'm grateful for the time that we've had. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us and, and keep up your incredible work with Nina and with all your initiatives that you do. Thanks very much, Anna. Yeah, it's been fantastic to chat with you and, uh, yeah, great work with the podcast and, and thank you for the work you do supporting Nina and everything else. Thanks, Anna. Bye.